everyone let's call a timeout this podcast is proudly sponsored by the medical indemnity protection society the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students it's free to become a student member for more information regarding mips student membership please visit qr.mips.com.au hi everybody welcome to the timeout my name is ganisht and i'm joined today by dr rubangi udayasiri a general surgeon with an interest in breast, endocrine, and laparoscopic surgery in the Goulburn Valley region. Remarkably, she's the only local female general surgeon in Shepparton. She's adored by many and will inspire many more today. Welcome to the showroom and thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about your specialty. What do you do exactly, Ru? So uh, I'm a general uh, surgeon with a uh, you know, an interest in, in breast cancer and breast surgery. I do the usual, I guess, range of surgical conditions and operate in the usual range of patients who are under general surgery. So I guess, you know, I do appendix surgeries, I do gallbladder surgeries, hernia surgeries, uh, but uh, my, my interest lies in, uh, in, in breast cancer and breast surgery. So um, I do mastectomies, I do wide local excisions, central lymph node biopsies, axillary dissections, just the usual um, type of surgeries that general surgeons do, I guess. Which is a wide range of um, specialties to dive into and which is the content of a lot of our questions a bit later in the episode. But for now, we'll move to some warm-up questions that I think we might have some fun with. First of all, dogs or cats? Dogs. Amazing. Do you have any dogs, Ruth? No, unfortunately. I'm campaigning really hard at the moment with my husband, but he made me make a choice a year ago, uh, child or dog, and I chose child. So that's what I've ended up with. Okay. That settles the debate. Um, beach or hike? Hike. Hike. Where have you been recently that you've enjoyed? Uh, well, unfortunately and is the experience of everyone, it's been COVID. So uh, not anywhere significant, uh, but I do like walking around uh, near my house. We've got a, a, you know, the Golden Valley rivers around that area. And I wouldn't say it's a hike, it's, it's definitely flat, but when you're taking three children around, it feels like a hike. It definitely feels like cardio. And uh, yeah, after about an hour of that, it's uh, probably equivalent to the summit of Nepal, really. Uh, yeah. and it's beautiful there. It's very peaceful. It's quiet. It's really lovely. There's a lot of places around my area, just where I live, where it's great to go. Now, music in the operating theatre or not? Absolutely. And what do you like playing on for everyone? Uh, the 90s, but uh, usually I have some registrars that overpower me. Uh, for some reason, a lot of them like Tay-Tay. So, you know, we stick with that. Uh, but, yeah, the 90s. You know, my yeah. preference is Backstreet Boys. I, I really think, like, a power romance ballad really brings any operation to a close. So, Absolutely. Taking away all kinds of tumours that you must be dealing with and Backstreet Boys, wonderful combination. Um, all right. So, Rue, what does a typical day in your life look like? Ah, a typical day. That's a mm. really interesting question because I very rarely have a, a typical day. Uh, but I guess, you know, my, my day usually starts at six o'clock with my son crying for his milk uh, and he's usually wailing from the cot. So that's kind of my first job, uh, getting the kids ready for school and daycare. Uh, so that usually, you know, sort of takes about an hour and then, and, and then dropping them off to their various locations. And uh, then uh, my day will usually start with having a discussion with the registrars about, you know, who are our sick patients, who they need me to see, you know, fairly quickly, briefly before starting surgery. And then uh, usually, you know, I'll have a morning session of surgery and then in the afternoon, um, I usually go to my private consulting rooms to see patients who have been booked in. 
if I'm lucky, that will finish early. And if I can get to the pool, I'll go for a swim. Uh, usually that doesn't happen because, um, you know, my daughter, my eldest daughter started school this year. So I'm adjusting to the three o'clock pickup which means after three, I really don't get an opportunity to be by myself and uh, she can't supervise me in the pool. So, uh, you know, basically, yeah, at the moment I haven't been doing a lot of exercise, but it, it usually she comes to my room and um, does a little bit of her homework and while I see the last couple of patients and then I'd pick up the rest of the children and, you know, make dinner, spend a little bit of time together, you know, usually play a board game or something like that or, um, and then, you know, putting the kids to sleep is, is a routine that can take either 15 minutes right up to five hours. And uh, once they're asleep, that's usually when I then think about um, the next day and get myself organised for the next day. So that'll often involve, you know, going through patients' results, uh, working out if there are anything that I need to particularly do before um, the day, you know, before the next day, you know, I might communicate with my practice manager. Uh, I do quite a bit of teaching after hours. So, um, you know, I always say to my registrars and anyone else that I teach, it has to be after 8.30 when the kids are in bed. So I usually do that. And then uh, my secret shame, which I'm now divulging on public podcast, is that I may or may not watch half an hour of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I find that's a really great way to wind down and also feel excellent about myself. And, um, yeah, then I might go to sleep sort of 10, 10, 30 if I'm lucky. Now, besides the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills that you've mentioned, um, is there anything similar that keeps you busy that you'd recommend in terms of books, music, TV shows? Well, you know, I love, um, you know, I love listening to music. And uh, I mean, at the moment I'm... I don't know if people know Milky Chance, but they're my go-to at the moment. And I really love Stolen Dance and Blossom. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of on my Spotify at the moment, as well as some stuff from Spoon, you know, written in reverse. So I guess I'm, I'm starting <laughs> to like rock bands a little bit, indie rock. And um, I do try and read. Uh, it's occasional, but usually I'll pick something that requires absolutely no brain power, like some trashy rom-com book. Uh, because it's a bit tricky to, you know, really get into a, you know, a good novel when you've got kids because you're usually interrupted constantly. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it, I like swimming. It's kind of my go-to. I find it relaxes me. It's good exercise. It's very therapeutic. And I don't know, there's something very primal about getting in water and calming at the same time. You just feel like you've really done something. Uh, so that's what I, that's my go-to's. And is there currently a personal challenge that you've set yourself in terms of swimming? Uh, well, I like to, when I swim, I like to swim 1.5 Ks. I, I don't know. It's a very arbitrary number. Uh, and an impressive one too. Uh, it, I don't know. I don't think it's particularly hard, but I will say I'm an asthmatic. So I, I find other forms of exercise more challenging, shall we say, because of the dry air and Swimming is something where you can really exert yourself and as an asthmatic, not, you know, because you've got this beautiful humidified air, you know, you can really go for it. And I guess a personal challenge is always just trying to beat my time. And uh, I couldn't honestly tell you what my current times are because I haven't been for a while. Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of my little personal challenge. I always just try and beat the clock. Somehow. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure your time would put a lot of us to shame. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, last one more question and an interesting one. Which historical figure would you love to sit down with and have a chat and why? Well, I guess the question is whether she exists or not. Joan of Arc, probably. Yeah. Sounds like a weird, weird thing to, I guess, say. But, I mean, the, the legend, the mystery, the story around this woman, I mean, was she just untreated mental health issues? you know, with a combination of, you know, schizoaffective or schizophrenia, you know, was she actually seeing these visions? I think it, it's a, just a, it's a wonderful story. It's this mythical figure. And uh, I think it's a story of female leadership, whether it was a good idea or not. And she was very firm. And I, I think she's a powerful figure because she led an army. And we don't see that many stories 
of women, I think, in war leading armies in that sort of way, and I, I find it fascinating. But I yeah. couldn't see if she was real or not. Yeah. In any case, imagine being able to sit down and just ask those questions. What were the challenges she was going through or things she would have had to face? I do agree. Fascinating. Now, if we start to delve into the story of Rue, let's start with your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in, in Colombo, in Sri Lanka, but I was only there for nine months, actually. And then my family, which was just mum and dad at that stage, we migrated to Saudi Arabia, which was actually quite common for a lot of Sri Lankan families in, that, in those days. And so I sort of was there till I was about six and a half, and that's when we migrated to Australia. So I've done, I guess, all of my schooling in Australia. So I'm Australian for, you know, all purposes except the cricket when I'm passionately Sri Lankan, diehard Sri Lankan, you know. So I had, uh, you know, I've got two younger brothers uh, who are uh, both doctors. Um, so um, my middle brother, I guess, Dilshan, he's a colorectal fellow uh, currently in Adelaide. And uh, my youngest brother, um, Sonal, is a, a radiology registrar at the Austin at the moment. So I grew up with two younger brothers and I guess that makes me slightly tomboyish because if you wanted to have someone to play with, you had to sort of get on board with the boy games, if you like. So um, my Barbies went to war a lot. <laughs> lost hair and head and uh but yeah no I mean I had a lovely childhood in the sense that um so my father was an engineer and my mum is a lawyer by training but uh, she gave that up to kind of raise us and I think I was I had a very idealistic childhood in the sense I had a very present mother uh you know she was always there ready to help us be so supportive you know, nurture and take care of us. And I had a father who was, when he wasn't at work, was very much involved in the family. And uh, so I had a great relationship with um, both my mum and dad, which was really nice. And then I had two great younger brothers. So what were you like as a child and teenager growing up? How did that influence you to this day? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think I, I, I didn't, you know, start off at four going, I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, obviously my parents aren't doctors uh, there was no one really in my immediate family uh, that comes from a medical background uh, but I, I mean I was always interested in uh, I was very good academically you know I always excelled at school but I was very all-rounded you know I loved sports loved drama loved you know really sinking my teeth into anything so I guess you could say I was a very active sort of person mm -hmm. uh, and participated in anything I could really do and that was given to me as an opportunity and so I think uh, you know I had a really good well-rounded background and uh, but I was also used to doing a lot of things you know I wasn't sort of the person that sat on the couch very much or um, and I was always outside just always outside when I wasn't studying so, uh, yeah, I guess I was just really an active person and that's probably reflected in what I've become as a surgeon. Always fascinated by the stories of how little traits or hobbies as a child and teenager mould into the various you know, qualities that a surgeon has. Um, would you say some of those things apply to you as well? Surgeons are very active type of people. Uh, mm. you know, they're very um, they're good multitaskers. They've always got things on the go. They're very rarely um, sitting down. You know, we probably should spend more time on reflection, but we're doers, right? We're very much doers. You know, if there's something to be done, we're there doing it. Um, and if we don't know how to do it, we'll give it a go and then learn how to do it. So that yeah. aspect of learn by doing. And uh, I think taking on a very um, sort of active role in your destiny is probably also a characteristic of surgeons. They don't wait for someone to give them, um, I guess, authority or permission to do something. They're, they're right in there. They're ready to give it a go and, um, and take that leadership role. And, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I was a bossy kid, but I would say that <laughs> I was definitely there um, doing something. Uh, not waiting to be told what to do. And I think, you know, th those qualities are definitely part of being a surgeon. 
you know, yeah. leadership, doing things and um, being able to, to multitask, you know, absolutely essential qualities in a surgeon. Yeah, I love that. And so if we fast forward then a few years when you went to medical school, what we've gathered, you graduated from University of Melbourne in 2007. Um, yes, what are some of the highlights you remember from those days? It's really interesting, isn't it? When you talk about med school, it just seems I know, so, looking so, back and everything. So long ago. And if I'm being honest, uh, when I think about medical school, it, I really just think about university and it was a, you know, it was a great and positive experience, but I, if I'm being honest, less about the medicine and more about all of the extracurricular activities <laughs> that I uh, explored and did during that time, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I was really, I was in, oh gosh, I was in about 10 clubs at university all from really, you know, I think I was in the Chinese Music Appreciation Society. I was in the Buddhist Studies Society. Um, you know, I was doing Wing Chun Kung Fu. At one stage, I was in badminton. Um, so most of med school, if I'm being honest, was really about those extracurricular activities. Like I, I attended med school. I definitely know I did that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think... When I think about med school, I, I think it's very interesting about how the people that you're in medical school with, who you're close to, who are in your PBLs are, uh, you know, not necessarily the people that you end up with, um, you know, later in life as a surgeon. And it just goes to show, you know, how much, you know, people move around in medicine. You know, you, you sort of start together and then you really branch out. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about the things that, we have at the start that eventually translate into our personality a bit later. And from what you're saying, getting involved in all these activities, they would teach you a few things, I imagine, about, you know, just balancing the full workload around you, but still focusing on something. Um, so it seems to you fully of the school that you need to make the most of your time and not just in medicine while you're in medical school. Oh, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know, once again, if I should be saying this on a podcast, but, you know, uh, C's get degrees, don't they? And uh, <laughs> being a, you know, being a doctor is, is really about passing medical school. And I will say this, not to, not as an excuse for, you know, just dragging your feet, but, uh, you know, medical school is important and doing well in medical school is important, but it's not everything. And, um, there's hope if you haven't done well in medical school. It doesn't necessarily translate to being a bad doctor. So, you know, that's something to take away. The reverse is not true, <laughs> but I will just say that, you know, if you haven't done well in medical school, it doesn't mean that you can't be a surgeon. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be a fantastic doctor. So, um, but I do think it's important to take the most. And uh I think, you know, take those opportunities as they come because you don't necessarily know how they're going to translate. And that's certainly been my experience. Um, you know, for example, like I was president of the Buddhist Studies Society um, for a while at Melbourne, the University of Melbourne. And um, it, that doesn't mean, you know, that I'm a hardcore Buddhist. In fact, you know, the purpose of that society was very much about the studies around Buddhism rather than, mm. you know, preaching about Buddhism. But some of the techniques, you know, every week we used to have a meditation session and the, it was a guided meditation session on, on just focusing on breath and breathing. And even to this day, that, that's a skill that I still utilise or it's, you know, something I come back to in those stressful periods. And you know, I didn't know that that was going to be um, where I used it uh, when I did that at university. So you, you never know. So I think it's important to take opportunities as they, as they pop up. And some of us would be concerned about, I'm in med school, I need to have this and that charted out for me um, for afterwards. But in reflecting back on your medical school days and your mindset, especially, what were your dreams and goals and ambitions at that stage? Uh, well, this is very interesting because uh, I wasn't planning to be a surgeon. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I tell this, I think I've told this story a thousand times to and, you know, probably some of the people listening here, you know, whether they're medical students have probably heard this story from me, but, you know, I wanted to be a GP. You know, I had my absolute heart set on 
being a GP because what I really love about that subspecialty is continuity of care. You know, um, it's such a unique part of being a GP. You know, you get to, you know, potentially, you know, deliver people and take them through their whole life. And that's a wonderful experience. And that was very much the reason I wanted to be a doctor. And, and that's what I was planning through my medical school, um, you know, to the point where I may have missed a couple of anatomy classes to attend Kung Fu instead, because why would I need anatomy? I'm not going to be a surgeon. Um, so oh, the irony is very uh, <laughs> bittersweet. But uh, so I think talking about yeah medical school, I didn't want to be a surgeon in medical school. And while you were thinking about all of those things, um, participating in the 10 societies or so, did you have any challenges to overcome them? And what did you do to overcome them? Well, I, I think at the, at the time I didn't... Um, think too much about it you know it was very it was very exciting you know I was young um, and after you know working so hard through the end of high school to get into medicine which is obviously incredibly competitive uh, it was nice to just have this freedom uh, to explore lots of ideas um, lots of uh, things that I'd never tried or um, had had interest in but didn't have the time to do you know, med school, I think people need to really realise it's, it's a very nice period in your life uh, before you become a doctor and you should try and, um, yeah, you know, make the most of those opportunities. I think for me, one of the challenges was less about managing all these clubs and societies, which were, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, heavily uh, alcohol-focused. Uh, yeah. It was actually... Um, I guess managing the workload of medical school with those clubs, but also supporting myself financially. So, mm -hmm. you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't come from a, um, I didn't come from a medical background, but I also didn't come from a, you know, a, a really well-off background where I could afford to um, go to med school and not earn um, sort of money to keep that going. So I also worked part-time. I was a tutor. Um, for, you know, some VCE subjects, but I also worked at Esprit part-time. That was quite stressful trying to manage, uh, you know, uh, paid work at the same time as doing medical school and then also, I guess, in my free time, you know, participating in all these clubs. So, uh, I mean, that was a challenge, but, you know, incredible life skills and the, you know, skills of managing uh, working during medical school, I think is a very important skill and one that's underestimated by, I think, a lot of medical students come, you know, transitioning to becoming an intern. Because if, if I'm being honest, internship wasn't that much of a challenge mm -hmm. in the sense, because a lot of the challenges of internship about, you know, the long hours, uh, being under pressure, uh, being, asked, being asked to do skills that you may not have necessarily developed. And obviously there's also, you know, managing money, managing shift work. Um, these sorts of challenges uh, it wasn't a particularly onerous one after doing, you know, working at Esprit for four and a half years. You know, yeah. I was used to being under the pump. I was used to um, having to meet sales targets. I was used to having to liaise with, um, you know, the hoity-toity of the fashion world. And um, to this day, trying to do stock take in Esprit uh, and getting the entire men's, you know, Chadston, all of that, uh, you know, all of those jumpers and pants and, oh, God, getting all of that together is still probably more challenging than any kind of major operation I've done, I'll be honest. Um, and in reflecting about working at the same time as studying, a lot of us would be doing that at the moment. And my reflection on that is you only know what you're capable of when there's no other way of doing it. So you have to support yourself financially. You have to you know, build up your CV essentially and, well, follow med school. And that's when you know what you're really capable of. Now, let's talk about medical students and your interaction with them on the other side of the mirror now. About, so let's talk about the vices and virtues of the modern day medical student. What do you think we should be doing less or more of? I mean, overall, I think the medical student coming through now 
uh, you know, very, very different to when I was a medical student. You know, like I entered medical school at 18 and that just, you know, that seems like a, an unusual thing uh, now because, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, some of the medical students that I, I do teach, uh, some of them are even older than me. And uh, so you, you've got a very different person. You know, you've often got a person with a lot of life experience, someone who's done a, a job before, but also I think a very clear understanding of self, um, who they are and what they want from medicine. Because when I entered medical school, I didn't know what I wanted and I knew very little of medicine. And although I'd been very committed to getting into medicine, I don't think I fully appreciated the job. Whereas I think, you know, the medical students coming through now are just so much more savvy about what's going to happen in the end and what they want. And they've often even differentiated into their subspecialty interest, even from year one. Mm. So I look, I think that's really great to know which direction you're going. And so I think that's something they're doing really well. And I, I don't know whether that's just um, self-selecting through the people that are so dedicated to get to this level um, or whether it's the way that, um, you know, the medical students are being chosen from whatever examinations or tests that the schools are performing. But mm -hmm. I think that's a really good aspect of it. I think something that I see that I would say it's, it's not negative, but I see as a challenge for med students these days is there seems to be a lot more pressure. Um, a lot of it seems to be self-issued, I would say. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know how much of it is put on by the, the medical school, but I, you know, I have a lot of medical students who contact me after hours, you know, I really need to know this, 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 and um, kind of very uh, marks focused, if you like. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure what the cause of that is, if, I, if I'm being honest, because I, I wouldn't know, you know, the ins and outs of exactly how universities work to see if that's something that's intrinsic or an extrinsic cause of that. But I would say um, to most medical students, try and remember why you're doing this. You know, at the end of this, you're becoming a doctor. And so um, trying to keep that in the focus, I think will reduce some of that stress because you you know why you're doing everything that you're doing and it shouldn't be towards getting the best mark in the exam it should be thinking well here's something I'm going to learn that's going to really help me look after a patient later in life and so now if we move on a few years ahead again where we talk about your early career route so I've gathered that you had your initial surgical training at the Austin before being accepted into the surgical education and training program in 2011 having worked all over the state and in Tasmania. Um, and after a few more years, you were then granted your FRACS in general surgery in 2017. Very interestingly, you also receive a conjoint committee recognition in gastrointestinal endoscopy in 2018. Now I'm thinking, let's break down that journey of yours. Um, was that a typical pathway for general surgeons at that time? Yes, so I'll just clarify that conjoint committee recognition. So what that means is that I'm able to perform gastroscopies and colonoscopies, mm -hmm. and that is a that's standard for general surgery trainees that go through. The, the expectation from FRACS is that you can do them, but um, currently, because gastroenterologists as well as general surgeons perform these procedures. Um, there's an external committee that actually grants you, um, you know, ex external recognition of that fact. And the um, prerequisites for that are higher than the standard expected in FRACS. So if you want to actually pursue endoscopy, um, you know, a postgraduate, you know, and do that as part of your career and your profession, uh, you need to obtain that. But I would say that most people would go on who are general surgeons who are interested in, in being a general surgeon would go and obtain that qualification. That would be pretty standard. Well, thanks for clarifying that because I was interested in finding out what that meant and whether people should be looking for it. Um, so it will, it will happen naturally as part of your training in general mm -hmm. surgery, but you, it just means that you need to get a couple more scope numbers than, and that, than what is expected. And tell us about working all over the place, essentially, in comparing 
the experience of metro hospitals versus rural ones. How was that for you? Well, um, so, yeah, I did my surgical training through the Austin and the Austin has a, a great mix of uh, metropolitan as well as regional opportunities. And um, I'll just say this right off the cuff now, where you learn to operate if you're being a surgeon is regional and rural areas. Mm-hmm. And we should give a huge shout out to those hospitals because that is where we learn to operate. And um, a lot of the metropolitan hospitals you know, have the advantage often uh, of uh, trainees who've been trained by these regional and rural um, surgeons to then perform surgery in a metropolitan context. And, um, you know, regional rural areas are are great places to learn to operate. And I think I noted that uh, pretty early on in my surgical training. So I actually actively sought out all of these regional opportunities, which is probably why I've ended up as a regional surgeon because I just enjoyed that so much. But uh, it also meant that I got to see quite a bit of Australia, um, you know, as a practising doctor, which is a great, you know, it's a great way to see, you know, a place is to live in it. So, yeah, so, I, you know, I, through my surgical training, you know, I went to, I was in Hobart for a while, I was in Launceston, I was in Burnie, um, you know, I've worked in Golden Valley Health, Echuca, Bendigo, really all over the state of Victoria and, um, and, and, and Tassie. A, a concern that we often hear is, I don't want to become a surgeon because of the lifestyle and having to move that much. What is your take on this statement? Uh, I'm biased, to put it yeah. that way. Uh, I don't know. I think I would put the question back to someone else and say, what would you do um, in your life in terms of training to get to a place where you get to do the best job in the world? Wow. That's what I would say to you because that's what everything in this life that's worthwhile requires sacrifice. So uh, I wouldn't, I, I don't, see it as I think in every subspecialty in medicine you are going to have an element of sacrifice so it doesn't feel like a sacrifice when you're getting to do exactly what you want at the end of it so I think my advice and my very strong advice to someone pursuing um, any subspecialty within medicine is to say don't make that decision based on lifestyle because you will be bitterly unhappy at the end of it because you're doing something you don't want to do. You're far better off making a decision going, I really actually really enjoy that subspecialty. And you know what? There's going to be a couple of hard years, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So choose your subspecialty based on your passion, not your perception of lifestyle. Because if you pick something based on a lifestyle and then you have to do it repeatedly again and again for the next 40 years, something you're not interested in, well, it's not really a lifestyle anymore. It's some sort of forced torture, really. At that stage as well, what were the things then that were driving your decision-making in the early stages of your career in terms of family and career and balancing it all, which is another concern of everyone? Yeah, look, it's tricky. It's very tricky. Uh, So, I mean, I was in um, sort of, I guess I was in a relationship right at the start of my training, which ended. And then fortunately, um, you know, I I met my husband shortly after that at the start of my surgical training. And surgery is a team sport, you know. Um, It's very difficult to do alone. So if you are, if you choose to have a partner in your life, you know, they really need to be on board because as much as you sacrifice, uh, they're sacrificing equally with you. You know, they may not be the physical presence, they may not be the poster child for that decision, but they are quietly um, sacrificing in the background. So it's a joint decision. Um, You know, that's not to put people off. That's what um, I think what I'm trying to encourage is really to people to communicate. Um, with their partners about what's possible and what's not. Um, There was definitely some tricky times in the rotations. And, um, you know, towards the end of my surgical training, I actually had a baby, which 
complicated things further. Mm. But, um, you know, I had a very honest conversation with my, um, well, actually, he was my boyfriend at the time uh, when things started getting serious. And I sort of actually had a very frank conversation with him. I said, look, I'm, I'm starting this surgical training and, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be long nights. It's going to be on call. And I may need to put you second in certain situations. Uh, so because I'm going to be making this big decision, I'd really value your input on it because whether you like it or not, you're going to be part of this. Mm. And I remember saying to him, oh, I'm happy to become a GP if you feel that that will give us a better lifestyle and, um, you know, we'll be better for our family. And I remember him saying, you'll be the most annoying GP because <laughs> it's not what you want to do. And so please go and do surgical training because that's what you're going to enjoy. So I had someone who, who'd made the decision with me that we were both going to go on this journey to becoming a surgeon. So I think communication is really important and it's not as hard as you think provided, you know, it's just like informed consent, the other person's on board. And that yeah. because of that, you are able to achieve balance because you're already predicting that there's going to be challenges and difficulties. So you're scheduling in your relaxation. You're scheduling in a break because you've got awareness and insight of how difficult it's going to be. Yeah, the understanding that you get from a person, regardless of whether they're in the medical field or not, um, is the thing that would keep you going in those times when everything around you seems to be you know, just crumbling. Absolutely. Now, um, similar to that point, as a surgeon or any other medical professional progresses in their career, do you think there are any other challenges um, that junior doctors tend to face? I think in medicine in general, obviously, it's getting more and more competitive, mm. especially even within, for example, general, sur general surgery. There are subspecialties now. And competition to getting into a subspecialty is becoming increasingly challenging. And um, the prerequisites for even application or consideration into these subspecialties is getting more and more difficult. And I think the, the challenges really facing junior doctors at the moment is the expectations about what is required of you before you get to your, what I'd call a stable point in your career. So, you know, in the past, perhaps, you know, you, you started your surgical training, you finished your surgical training, you decided you were this particular type of a subspecialty, and then you, you, you know, you really did that fellowship as part of your, I guess, just part of your normal working day. Whereas now, um, you know, getting into subspecialties may require you doing PhDs or further studies, may require specialised um, the training overseas and I think coming out as a junior surgeon um, thinking wow I've just done this huge six years of surgical training I'm absolutely exhausted yes I've got my letters I've come to the end and you think now I can relax and then you see just another couple of years of more training and more subspecialty um, so it can be a real challenge and I think at that point you know, this often coincides with all of, um, you know, particular challenges that are occurring in your family life as well. You know, you, you may be having children, you may have, you may already have children at this stage. Um, you, you may have a partner that's got, you know, a, a difficult or challenging job as well. And um, on top of that, it might be moving your family again after yeah. you've just put them through, you know, six years of that. So I think that's really the challenge for junior doctors, as well as where, where are you going to work? Yeah. One of the, as you say, you know, through your surgical training, you do a lot of rotations here, there and everywhere, and you're looking for a period of at least stability in your life and you want to be in one place at least for a year uh, or two. And uh, once again, that can be a really challenge for a junior doctor because that, that may not be there as an option. Yeah. And do you have, this might be asking for a lot, but do you have a solution in terms of, if not outcome, but mindset, maybe what should 
these people be thinking about? I mean, there's a reason that you are required to do further training in these subspecialties because that's what's actually what's required. So mm -hmm. how do you balance that with not making people do 20 years of training to then have only 10 years of working life left? You know, it, it's, very, it's very tricky and I, I certainly don't presume to know the answer to such a big question. But I, what I would say to people is that every step of the way you need to be always asking yourself, is this the right decision for me, you know, Rue, right here, right now? Because I think one of the challenges and one of the tricky parts is a lot of um, keeping up with the Joneses syndrome, as I call it. You know, that guy over there is doing a fellowship in Toronto in X, Y and Z. Oh, gosh, maybe I should do that. Well, is actually, is that the right decision for you? Is that the right decision for your family? And at the end of the day, are you even interested in what's happening in Toronto? And I think uh, that is a, is a challenge for, um, you know, for surgeons. And so I encourage people at every step of the way to be asking yourself, is this the right decision for me? And not looking at what the decisions that other people make and using that as a way that you make your decisions. That's just not going to help you long term. Very wise words, Rue. Um, now, another reason why we were quite excited to get you onto the show was to get an overview about rural surgery. As part of the cohort, most of us might be in metro or not have an appreciation of rural surgery. So can you tell us what is involved and what can rural surgeons do exactly? Well, <laughs> oh, that's, that's a bit, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Because I haven't been a metropolitan surgeon. So I don't have a way to compare it. Obviously, I, I trained in a metropolitan setting. I trained at, at Austin Health. So, you know, all of the wonderful things about metropolitan hospitals, you know, they're tertiary centres with subspecialists who are doing, you know, complicated, um, you know, exciting surgery in, um, in, at, at the frontier of surgery. So, they're, you know, that's what in my opinion, you know, metropolitan surgery is all about, you know, is pushing the limits in terms of knowledge, in terms of surgical techniques. And that's a wonderful part of it. Uh, but the reality of most surgery that we do within all specialties, it's a lot of it is bread and butter. So when we talk about being, a, I guess, a rural surgeon, what we're saying is we do a lot of bread and butter general surgery. And one of the advantages of general, being a general surgeon in a rural setting is um, that need to not subspecialise. And that was something of interest to me. Uh, and that's something that I really enjoy about my job. You know, there are very few breast surgeons, uh, I would say, in metropolitan Melbourne that are trauma surgeons, um, that are still doing gallbladders, are still doing... Uh, you know, keyhole bowel surgery, and at the same time, uh, you know, performing gastroscopies and colonoscopies. And that's what I get to do as a general surgeon in a rural setting. So that's, you know, the wonderful part of my job. The, I think the other part of my job that I really enjoy is the patients. And, I, you know, the patients, you know, the population that you care for in a rural setting uh, you know, really appreciate the role that you have in their community. You know, for me, as the only local general surgeon who, who's female, you know, I have a huge role um, and impact in this community. And it's, you know, it's a pleasure to do this job. And it's a very important job. And it's why I have a great job satisfaction uh, because I get to, because I get to do that. You know, obviously one of the challenges is, not, not having, you know, subspecialty colleagues to rely on and that gets a bit tricky and also uh, not pushing yourself in terms of your education and your operative technique is also tricky. So you need to set yourself up really well to do this, you know, because my, my aspiration and my dream is that if you have an operation with me here in Shepparton, you should have the same experience and the same high quality of care that you could expect in metropolitan Melbourne. And so it's about having a lot of insight into making sure that you are keeping up to date with the knowledge 
and recognising the limitations of what you can provide as a service in a rural setting, whether it's because you don't have the technical expertise or whether you don't have the resources to back that up. So that can be part of the tricky parts of your job, but there are ways to, to get around that. And it, as I said, it requires a lot of insight and I think it requires a lot of planning and drive, really. Yeah, because the other thing about rural surgery and what um, medical students and junior trainees would be thinking about is if they do go rural, is it accessible for them to ever come back to Metro or the other way around? What would you tell those people around that conundrum? Well, if I'm being honest, I don't think they need to worry too much about that because currently all of our training schemes are metropolitan based. So you don't okay. need to worry about surgical training in a rural setting because usually your experience of regional rural surgery in, is in the context of being rotated out from a metropolitan hospital. So you're very much trained in a metropolitan setting and th that's deliberate because there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of expertise, there's a lot of subspecialty training that's required, which cannot be uh, delivered in a rural or regional setting incomplete. So, it, you know, it's very deliberate. Um, I guess it's very deliberately done like that. So you, I, you don't have to worry too much about not being able to get back to a metropolitan setting because that's where you've trained. So if anything, it's very difficult to go the other way, <laughs> which is being trained in a metropolitan setting and making the decision to go and work in a rural regional area. And that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge across all of the states in all of the specialties. Yeah. Now let's talk practicalities and logistics. If someone is interested in rural surgery, what should they be looking for? Is it electives? Is it medical students? Is it rotations out in the country? What can we do? Well, I, I mean, like, like anything, it's all about experience, isn't it? Because you really need to know if this, this is for you. So, you know, I would just encourage people to choose to do a rural or regional rotation because um, don't worry, that's an easy choice. You'll definitely get it because most people want to stay uh, metropolitan for very valid reasons. You know, often their partner's there, their life's there, their friend's there. Um, that's where the house is. So, you know, it's very reasonable to make the decision to stay metropolitan. But if you're interested in regional surgery, just pick the rotation, experience it and see if it's for you. But fundamentally, experiencing a surgical rotation um, as, and as much as you like surgery, perhaps regionally, that may not translate into becoming a regional rural surgeon because, of course, the decision about where you live and work is far more complicated than what you want as an individual. Yeah, and I appreciate the complexity that lies behind those decisions, which some of our listeners are currently going through actually. Um, now there's second issue in a broad sense that I wanted to talk to you about was being a woman of color in surgery. It would have come with its highs and perhaps it's many more challenges and lows, but can you tell us how was the journey for you to get to where you are? I haven't thought about it too much, except uh, now that I've become a surgeon in a, in a regional area and it's, it's very in your face. You know, I, I am the only local female general surgeon. And so it's, it's very much, uh, you know, a way that you are defined, certainly in this community. Mm -hmm. But I can honestly say through my training, I don't think I thought about it too much. Uh, and maybe that was, maybe that was silly, but, uh, you know, I had a very positive surgical training experience. Um, you know, I was uh, very well supported by, um, you know, my bosses at the time, my supervisors of training, and I didn't it really experience um, any challenges of being, being female, being um, of colour, uh, really at all until, um, you know, there's a tricky part when I got pregnant that just posed a challenge yeah. um, in the sense, but that was an expected challenge of, you know, a registrar that was going to leave during a rotation in a, I guess, unexpected way because you don't know when babies are going to come. 
so that made, uh, you know, planning for the team that I was working under a little bit tricky and a bit challenging, but, you know, it was overcome. And so overall, it was a, re a really positive experience. And I, I can honestly say I didn't think about it too much. Uh, now that I live in Shepparton, it is, it is a little bit tricky in the sense that people have certain expectations around you. Um, so unfortunately, I do still have patients who, you know, look at me at the end of a consultation and say, you speak English very well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I say, you know, well, I bloody well hope so because I've been since I was six, you know, I'm Australian and, you know, it comes as a bit of a shock, but, you know, that, that's not too bad. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I don't think I really experienced too much trickiness being female or, or, or of colour other than um, having to ask a lot of my bosses at the time to put the table up because I couldn't reach. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that was really it. Uh, but, you know, that's not too big a challenge. Yeah. So two things um, strike me from that overview. One is the internal disposition you had of you didn't see it as a problem, so you just forged ahead and the second um, aspect of that was surrounding yourself with people who you know believed in you and gave you the opportunity such as you know raising the operating table or lowering it that is um, do you feel those two things are enough um, to help those people going through some of the challenges around that I, I mean I'm thinking about your question a little bit more now that you're saying it and I think something that's really interesting uh, in your surgical training, and I think one of the great things that I've seen, um, you know, with the current University of Melbourne program and, and organisations and groups like yourselves is uh, marrying surgeons with, uh, you know, a mentor and a mentee relationship. Mm -hmm. And I really wish that through my training, that's something that I had an opportunity to do because you know, it's very easy to walk down a path that someone else has walked down. And I will say one of the challenges being female and of colour um, going through surgical training is I didn't have a poster child at the end of it. You know, who was I going to become? You know, I can't really relate to the seven foot uh, European, uh, you know, dynasty uh, male surgeon. You know, that, that wasn't going to work. Um, I couldn't relate to, you know, the surgeon that's working, you know, 160 hour a week um, who, you know, perhaps didn't see his family or wasn't the primary carer for his children. You know, that, that didn't, that, that wasn't there. I didn't have someone to uh, look towards and go, well, you know, I want my life to be like them. And I think that can pose a challenge. And that is something that I would have liked through my training. I think that would have helped. Yeah, and the person you became today is effectively the hero you're looking for back then. Just like a Marvel movie. Um, so I was getting to some of your current work, Rue, and you've told us about what occupies you in terms of your specialty, um, in terms of the places where you work, but what other professional commitments keep you busy these days? Okay. Uh, someone asked me that actually explain what work I do at the moment. So mm -hmm. currently I have a public appointment at Goulburn Valley Health. Um, I'm a VMO at Kyabrum, Achuka, Namurka, Shepherd and Private Hospital. Um, I'm a senior lecturer for the University of Melbourne, which means that I teach and lecture medical students. Uh, I also am starting my PhD at the Peter McCallum. Uh, in August this year. Uh, on top of that, what else do I do? Uh, I actually, um, I'm going to be one of the clinicians involved in the vaccination rollout for the general public um, in the Goulburn Valley region. So that's a job that I'm starting soon, mm -hmm. as well as I've been employed by some of the um, smaller regional hospitals to do the elective surgery blitz that the Victorian government's launching uh, to try and catch up after there's been some delays mm. in elective surgery. Yeah. Yeah, as well as being a mum. So um, <laughs> the, the, there's a lot there, probably. There's a lot. And in terms of priorities and goals at this stage as well, because we never do stop setting ourselves goals, as we were talking about a bit earlier, what can we see you doing over the next few years? 
Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've got a subspecialty interest in, in breast surgery um, and specifically breast, breast cancer. And uh, it, I think, you know, calling yourself that is not enough, really. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more interested in increasing my knowledge around that area. And it's a bit tricky with, um, you know, three young children to pursue a, a breast or oncoplastic fellowship at the moment, which is the main reason that I'm not doing it. And I guess now that we've got a global pandemic, even less realistic uh, doing that. So um, on reflection, I thought, how can I increase my knowledge? And the, you know, the natural, I guess, progression is to pursue a PhD. Um, and so I had an option of, I guess, doing a PhD under a clinical, um, you know, under a surgeon or, um, you know, going back to basic sciences, if you like, and raw sciences. And I thought, well, you know, I've been a surgeon for a while now and, you know, this will be something different. So I, that's why I've pursued um, this PhD at the Peter McCallum under a, under a scientist mm-hmm. rather than a clinician, because I think that'll be really interesting. It'll be um, a new set of skills, a new way of looking at the world. And so I'm hoping that um, I, I can gain some of that knowledge and hopefully get a very strong understanding of how to perform good research and ideally bring it back to where I'm working in Shepparton and um, you know, hopefully get, uh, you know, some of the junior doctors and even my colleagues a little bit more involved in clinically orientated research. But, you know, getting to that point requires the tools, which I hopefully will develop through my PhD. So that's the idea. You know, the end goal is becoming, uh, you know, the best breast surgeon that I can be. That's that's the aim. Um, now, to finish up our conversation today, um, which is yeah, we're already nearly at the end of our time together. But I had three questions, three reflection questions for you, Rue. One of which I was thinking about, what are the values that you think have helped you the most to get to where you are today? I think hard work. Mm-hmm. You have to be, be work-oriented. You have to be dedicated. Uh, and I think an undervalued value, if you like, is organisation. So you have to be really organised to get to where you're getting to, um, especially if you want to do it in the most efficient way. And um, I, I'm nothing if not obsessed with efficiency. So, uh, yeah, when you're trying to balance all of those things in your life, um, you know, organisation becomes a really important value. You can never put enough on it. Yeah. And thinking about um, on a similar vein, do you think there's a life motto? that really captures how you view um, your life, Ruth? Uh, I, I don't know where it comes from, and I'm probably going to say this wrong because I haven't thought about that in a while, but there's this phrase talking about the most important difference in this life is the difference between what you are and what you become. And I think that's true for me because that's what is a real driving force in my life, is not... You know, and I talk about a lot to my junior doctors and um, Jazz, my mentee, can attest to this. You know, we talk about, about capacity. So a lot of people have capacity and the question is what you're going to do with it. And so it's about utilising and harnessing that capacity and then just going for it. So um, that's kind of what my life's about. It's about reflecting on where I've started and and the fact that I want to create that big difference in my life from where I've come, where I've started to where, where I'm going and keeping that, you know, in the forefront of all my thinking is very motivating. Yeah, that's very inspiring. Now, question two I had for you was, have you ever felt like you've ever failed and how did you deal with it? Oh, absolutely. It's probably public knowledge, but, uh, you know, I failed my FRACS exam the first time I sat it and it was a very um, challenging time in my life because my father actually died the day after the exam uh, from rectal cancer and it was the first time in my life that I failed anything and in hindsight and on reflection I probably shouldn't have sat that exam 
but at the time it was such a tumultuous emotional period that um, you know my decision my good decision making had gone out the door yeah. and um, medicine and surgery was something that was normal um, that you were used to doing that provided stability and so at the time I thought it was a really great decision to have to be a new mum so I had my baby and you know she was five months old. I was still breastfeeding and I thought that was a really great decision. <laughs> and in hindsight, that was really silly. And so, um, you know, it's not whether I thought I failed, I actually did fail. So what I would say to people is you should use my story as um, don't worry about that at all because um, it, has, is, it has not impacted where I am today. And that process of failure was both humbling but it was the stop I needed to reflect on my life at the time because I didn't actually appreciate exactly how difficult things were and it really made me stop and reflect. And uh, it made me, I think, a better surgeon coming out of it in the end because I really had to learn everything again. So that's always a good thing to have more knowledge. But it also um, taught me the skill of overcoming overcoming failure which up till that point I didn't have that skill and um, you know it was it was humiliating it was very public it was a challenge but I'm here now at the other end of it and so I think for anyone who's worried about failure um, don't worry about it too much because you'll learn you'll learn from it and more than that time is a great healer you know, it's like it's like the stages of shock, right? You know, the first hit is really challenging and it's really difficult, um, but then your body adapts and, um, you know, that's what happened. And, you know, I got some skills from it and now I'm, it's not that I'm proud of it. You're never proud of failure, uh, but I, I really just see it as, um, uh, you know, just uh, something that I had to go through from which I learned some skills and I think it's made me a better surgeon. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us, Ru. And for our last question for you today, could you tell us about someone who's had a significant influence on your career, whether it be uh, the person who was in medicine or not, and what did you learn from them? If I'm being, right now, the person I'm thinking about, and I'll be honest about that, is actually my obstetrician. So... She is a fantastic example of someone I actually aspire to be and, and, and hopefully have become. Um, so uh, I'm going to put a shout out to Dr. Carol Vance, who's the head of supervisor, or she's the supervisor of training at the Mercy Hospital. Absolute fantastic human being and a great clinician and an obstetrician. Um, so she had a very significant influence on my career not so much about how, you know, the technical aspects of being a general surgeon, but on the way to be a great consultant. And, you know, and I learned all these lessons being her patient, which was a really interesting way to yeah. learn. So, you know, I learned the importance of great communication. And as any doctor will tell you, there's it's probably one of the hardest challenges in your life is communicating with another doctor about a medical problem that they have. You know, mm -hmm. it poses a really unique challenge of exactly the right way to pitch any answer, any question that you ask them. And I watched her um, communicate with me both really effectively in a, a non-patronising manner, but really respectful of um, the knowledge that her patient came in with. And, I, you know, she did this great balancing act. And I really looked at that and I thought, I want to be exactly like that, um, you know. And at my first baby I delivered as a registrar. So I was thinking I really want to be like that when I become a consultant. And she's delivered two more of my babies. And so I've had a, you know, I've had a long time with her, you know, like five years um, being her patient in, in some sort of capacity. And what I saw over that time is just, um, you know, what an honest, um, you know, humble, uh, you know, extremely ethical consultant she is and the importance of um, your team in 
in getting great outcomes for your patients, which should ultimately be the aim of being, you know, being a surgeon. You know, it's all about the patient. How, how you can tell if you're a good clinician is the way that not your necessarily your own colleagues talk about you, but the whole team talks about you. So how do your nurses talk about you? How do your midwives talk about you? You know, how does the cleaner talk about you? How does your reception staff talk about you? It, on every level, um, all of the people who are in Carol's lives has only positive things to say about her because there is a respect that she has for what they do and what she does. And I think that was a really significant uh, lesson for me, uh, being her patient, watching that in the way that I've chosen to be as a consultant, you know, today, because that's what I try and really emulate. You know, I'm only as good as my team. If my nursing staff aren't good, that's going to reflect badly on me. If I if they don't feel like they're being um, respected for the job that they do, they can't do their job really well. So I think being, you know, especially being a surgeon, you are very much, it's a team sport, as I mentioned earlier. So having a really good, good team around you is really important. And that just starts with respect. And for Dr. Carol Vance, I'm thinking the inspiration of my inspiration is my inspiration as well. Unfortunately, we are at the end of our conversation today. I'm so grateful for your time and contribution. And on behalf of the whole team, we all wish you good luck in your own endeavours. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. See you later, Bert. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'd love to hear what you think, so leave us your comments and questions on our Facebook and Twitter pages, at TTO Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to receive your regular dose of the time app. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their continual support. This episode was brought to you by Ganisht, Aidan, Chloe and Noreen, and we'll see you next time.